0: Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. We are, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, we are wanting to move forward, we're wanting to grow, we're wanting to mature, and so if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or if you're newer to Jesus, or if you're maybe not even sure about Jesus and are just kind of curious and checking him out, wherever you're at, we're here to help, and we want to help you take those next steps. We focus on that primarily in these three ways, upward, inward, and outward. We want to take our next steps upwardly, that is Our our relationship with him, our knowledge of him, our knowledge of his word, our communion with him, our connection with him. We're wanting to grow deeper in our relationship with him. Inwardly, we want to take our next steps as he does his work in us. His word and his spirit come to change us, to make us more like Jesus, to heal us, to bring us into freedom. And so we want to take our next steps inwardly. And then outwardly is how are we living it out, especially as it relates to other people? How are we loving people? How are we engaging the world for Jesus? How are we taking our next steps? in that direction as well. So we're always wanting to frame everything as we are moving forward and taking next steps in those directions. We've been in a sermon series for the last number of weeks that we've simply called Jesus and the Sinners. We're looking at key stories from the gospel where Jesus meets people in their sin, and we're wanting to look at what does this teach us about Jesus? What does this teach us about our sin? What does this teach us about sin when we see it in other people, and how we can be Christ-like, and how we engage with other people when they are in sin, even as we're wrestling with and grappling with our own sin. There's been five key ideas that we've kept coming back to throughout the series uh, that have informed us as we've gone along the way. Number one, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did, John tells us. And so we hold as in high regard that to be followers of Jesus, we want to follow what Jesus taught and how he lived his life. Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. We are seeing that over and over again in these stories, that there are some people who think Jesus is a bit too friendly towards sin, uh, and they're not understanding that although he's not friendly towards sin, he does love the sinners, and he is walking that line very well. And so some religious people think that Jesus is too friendly with sinners, too soft on sin. He doesn't seem overly concerned that they feel that way. He keeps doing exactly what he's doing. That being said, Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us away from it. Anything that the Bible calls sin, we believe, is called sin because it's not good for us. Ultimately, there are behaviors that aren't good for us, and so God calls us to a better way. And so Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us to find that better way, that holiness is better, purity is better, the way of Jesus is better. And so Jesus calls sin what it is and says, find that better way as you walk with me. Jesus is both holy and merciful. He holds those things together. He is holy in his view of sin and yet is also merciful and loving and compassionate to the human beings who are struggling with it. He doesn't compromise either one. He holds both of those things together, and that's what we are shooting for as well. And then finally, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. And he doesn't always want them to stay where they are, of course. He is sometimes calling them to that better way, but he meets them where they're at. He doesn't say, you gotta clean up first before I'll talk to you, or you gotta jump through all of these religious things before you can, you know, join me and and follow after me. He meets them where they're at. He calls them to better, but he meets them exactly where they are with love and compassion. So as we get ready to jump into our text, I was reminded of a story this week. I may have shared it here before. But one of the worst times I ever got in trouble as a kid... I was around 11-ish years old. And that's when your oldest kid hits that sort of 10, 11, 12 age. I think all parents go through something where they go, Oh, we can start to think about leaving them home alone, right? We don't always have to have an adult with them all the time. And we've gone through this in our house. And I'll tell you, it's one of the best parts of parenting. The day you realize that we don't have to gear our entire lives around who's the adult who's going to be with them. There's some freedom that comes when you can do that. So we do that in short spurts in our house. But I was around that. 11 age, and I don't remember the details of what exactly happened, but my dad was off at work, I think, and my mom had to go to him. I don't know if his car broke down or something, but she needed to, to get to him quickly, and I was making the argument that I was old enough to stay home alone. Uh, my brother is several years younger than me, and I just said, just leave us. You're going to be gone for 15 minutes. We don't want to go. Like, just just let us stay home um, and my mom said, all right, well, you know, let's give this a try. This is gonna be a, a short trip. I'm, I'm gonna be not too far away. I'll be back in 15, 20 minutes, and let's see, how, let's see how Chris does. Let's see if he's ready for something like this. And so my mom got in the car and left, and left all the rules of you, know, you keep the door locked, and you don't answer the door, and you don't answer the phone, and, and you just stay in and watch your show, and I'll be back in a few minutes, and everything will be fine. And so she took off, and I turned to my brother, who at that point is around six, And I said, how would you feel about some candy? (laughs) And being six, he said, I would love the idea of some candy. And I said, okay, we don't have any candy in the house, but Max Convenience is just down the road. So you stay here, I'll run to Max, and I'll get us some candy. And he, I don't think was thrilled, but went, well, all right, okay, candy is on the line. And so I I left my six-year-old brother alone, ran to the convenience store with our allowance money, bought us some candy, came back. I came back, he's sobbing in the house because I left him terrified at six years old. Um, that being said, the sobbing went away because I did, in fact, have candy, and so I, we shared the candy. We had a great time. We hid the wrappers, right? We cannot tell mom. Don't you dare tell mom. Um, and so my mom came home, you know, 20 minutes later, walked in the door, and instantly my brother broke <laughs> and said, Chris right? he left me home by myself, and he went to the store and he got his candy." And, again, one of the worst times I ever got in trouble in my life. Now, my defense, my lawyering that I was doing in the moment was that even though what I did was bad, it wasn't as bad as my brother being a rat. And if he hadn't been a rat, then it never would have been found out. No harm was done. Everything would have been fine. And so when my dad was letting me have it later in the evening when he got home, I was trying to say like, yeah, but what about Dan being a rat? What about him not having my back? And as you can expect, that didn't go over super well. Because he was six, I had abandoned him in the house. And so that was the worst trouble I remember getting into as a kid, was I had abandoned my brother to be alone and, and just left him alone in the house and, um, and for candy, right? Not even for a, a noble cause of any kind. Um, and so, but it just you know, it's it's interesting. We're talking about sin in this series, and our sin, and uh, and just how you know, at that age, there was just something in me that when I was in trouble and legitimately in trouble, um, it's like, well, no, let's look at that person's sin. Let's get the attention off me onto them. <laughs> right and I think you know as grown-ups we don't actually necessarily leave that behind right that's not something that's just a childish thing I think there is something in us when it comes to sin we don't really want to focus on our own because that's an unpleasant thing and so it's very easy to focus on other people's sin and make that our emphasis rather than dealing with our own stuff uh, and there's a deflection that happens where we go rather than paying attention to myself rather than owning my own stuff rather than saying you know what I did screw up in this area and I'm going to do better it can be easier to focus on other people's stuff and especially maybe that stuff that we don't struggle with so much. I've been sharing throughout the series that Philip Yancey quote where he says Christians get very angry with other Christians who sin differently than they do. Right, Because if you don't uh, struggle with that sin, it's easy to pass judgment on it. If you struggle with that same sin, you're probably going to be a little more gracious. And and still call it sin, I would hope. But you're going to be more gracious because you understand the struggle. And when it's a sin that you don't particularly struggle with, it's really easy to look down on it. It's really easy to focus on that one and not deal with your own stuff. So we see a bit of a story of that in our text today. Let's look at John chapter 8. We're starting in verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So that is a well-known story. Uh, when you think about Jesus and sinners, maybe one of the most, if not the most, well-known story. Uh, I know atheists who know that line very well, that he who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, that is a, a well-known phrase and, and a well-known, uh, to just a uh, check on our judgment and our self-righteousness. Uh, as we've gone through this series, we've also been looking at this verse from John one fourteen. We have seen his Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that, that balancing act of grace and truth, that Jesus was somehow fully gracious and fully truthful at the same time without sacrificing either one. I have shared my theory. I think most of us probably lean a bit towards one side or the other. We're maybe a little more gracious than we are truthful. And sometimes we can sacrifice the truth just because we genuinely love people and, and want to be compassionate and merciful. And some of us are really good at the truth side of thing, and we can speak the truth boldly. And sometimes we lose that grace, and we lose that compassion, and we lose that mercy Jesus had both together and actually I think this story is a a beautiful example of both coming together we see Jesus both gracious and truthful in this story and if we're going to be like Jesus we are looking for that same thing so as we reflect on this story this woman uh, caught in adultery and how Jesus responded we are prayerfully asking okay Jesus what does this teach me about you what does this teach you about my sin what does this teach me about when I see somebody else in their sin Uh, Jesus does not allow us in the name of grace to give up truth, and nor does he allow us in the name of truth to give up grace. And so as we look at our story, starting in verse 3 and 4, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. So Jesus is teaching in the temple. So this is the center of worship. This is the center of the city. This is a very, very, very public place. And Jesus is there doing his normal teaching. So they bring forward this woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught. In the act of adultery. So, this is a very, very, very public thing that has happened. And part of as we seek to grow in in just compassion and empathy and love for one another, uh, you know, consider the worst thing you've ever done, and now consider it exposed in a very, very, very public place. A lot of our sin, we want to cover up, right? Like, we we don't want people to know, and and we don't want anyone to see it. So imagine the worst thing you've done being exposed publicly in front of everybody, out in the open and out on display. Uh, What is often mentioned in this story, which is striking in this story, is where's the man? Where's the man in this story? She was caught in the act, they said. So obviously there was a dude there, right? Like, that was happening. Um, the man is off the hook, apparently. Um, there, there is something about this that just doesn't feel right for that reason. There is something about this, and, and churches and synagogues and, uh, and goodness knows human history have not always treated women fairly, obviously, and there is something just fundamentally unfair about only one of the partners being drawn forth in this particular moment. And as they come forward, uh, you know, you see this in movies, and the mob is there and they're angry. Uh, sometimes they're holding rocks and they're you know they're getting ready to stone her. The text actually doesn't make that crystal clear. Um, it doesn't say that they're they're about to execute her themselves. Uh, that might have happened. It's just not explicit in the text. And we always just want to be as clear as we can be on what the text says and on what it doesn't. But there is something about this again that's just okay. So it's it's not really just she's legitimately caught in sin. That's real. She's legitimately crossed the line. Uh, we took some time a couple of weeks ago to talk talk about sexual sin in particular and, and what the Bible says about that. And, uh, and just to, to cap it up in a nutshell here, just the idea that in the sexual act that is as, as emotionally and physically and spiritually vulnerable and intimate as you can be with another person. And so God in his word has said, you express that vulnerability only within the safety of, of the marriage covenant. Because in the marriage covenant, you say, I'm sticking with you for life. I'm not going anywhere. And once you've made that commitment to one another, you are now safe to express the the more intimate, vulnerable side of things. And so there is a a boundary line put around sex in scripture that says it stays within marriage. This woman and her uh, partner have violated that, obviously. Um, There is something in Christians in general that tends to elevate sexual sins higher than than other sins in terms of how bad they are. There does seem to be something, it's always been that way, um, that when it comes to sexual sin, those are worse sins than other sins. Uh, I don't think there's biblically any reason to think that. Um, I know sometimes Christians get accused of even sort of being obsessed with sexual sin. Uh, I don't know if that's true of us or not, but I do think there is something where if it's a sexual sin, we do tend to treat it differently than other sins. I don't think anything in scripture allows us to do that. We should call it sin as we would call it any other sin. Uh, we don't need to, to elevate it as somehow worse than other things. There are sins, of course, are, that are worse. Murder is worse than, than you know, insulting somebody. Um, but in terms of just this whole area of sin that seems to just kind of get special attention from us in a way that I'm not quite sure why we do that, but it does seem to be there. All throughout uh, church history, There tends to be certain groups of sinners that we also kind of pay special attention to as somehow worse. And often it's happening because there's stuff going on in the culture at the time. So there was a long time in the early part of the 20th century where Christians were very much against alcoholics and uh, pushed hard for prohibition and pushed hard to get alcohol uh, outlawed and, and went along that line. And so alcoholism was kind of the cultural battle at, at that time. And so, uh, so all Christians were kind of talking about that. And again, there's nothing in scripture that says that's a worse sin than any, the other sin that we should also be equally concerned about, uh, but that was sort of what got the attention there, uh, and then as, as the 20th century unfolds, just different things would come up. And as different things would come up, those would kind of become the worst sins that the Christians are, are paying attention to. Often it would be sexually related or uh, or abortion related at different times as that became legalized. And there were just kind of certain things that got our attention while lots of other sins we didn't really pay any attention to in the same way. So there is something a little bit, um, you know, back to that quote of, you know, when you're not personally committing the sin, it can be easy to to, you know, pass judgment on it. If you don't drink or if you don't struggle with drinking, it can be easy to look down on an alcoholic. But if you are an alcoholic, you don't look down on the fellow alcoholic because you know what the struggle is like. And so part of what we are wanting to learn in this series is just the reminder that we are all sinners and my sin might be different than yours, but we've all got something. And when we see one another in sin, uh, not to look down on that person, not to think I'm up here and you're down here or you're worse than me for some reason, but to go, wow, that's a fellow struggler struggling through something. And we don't have to agree with what they're doing, but nor can we look down on them with judgment. And so uh, we're all just in this, this journey of pursuing holiness and trying to find Jesus together here in the church. For those who don't know Jesus yet, uh, they don't even know Jesus yet. So why would we expect those who don't know Jesus to follow in the way of Jesus? We got to introduce them to Jesus first. And it would be very, very strange. I've used this example before. Uh, like if a Muslim got really angry at me for being a bad Muslim... They'd be absolutely right, because I'm not one at all. Like, I'm terrible at following the Quran, because I I don't ascribe to it. There's nothing in me that's trying to follow after it. And it would be weird to get angry at me when I've never made any, uh, you know, any uh, projections that that's something I'm trying to do. And so, we just, it's attitude as much as anything, right? And then that's a lot of what this series is about. It's our attitude as much as anything. Back to our story, verse 5 and 6. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So there is truth happening here. The law of Moses did indeed say that. If you committed adultery, if you violated your marriage vows, it shows up a couple of different ways. Uh, Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, Israel has not followed that literally for quite some time time at this point in their history Uh, no one is following that literally so it's a bit of an unfair thing to put him on the spot but there's a trap involved John says there's something that they're trying to get him to do the Pharisees and the teachers were always trying to trip him up uh, because our Jesus is super duper smart he never fell into the trap ever they were always trying to back him into corners or getting, get him to overcommit to something or get him to say something that he shouldn't. He never did it one time. He, he always saw through the trap and was able to maneuver his way around it. So the nature of the trap here is this. They're saying, here's a woman, and the Bible is crystal clear, says that she should be executed. So what do we do with this woman, Rabbi? And if he says, yes, you should execute her, that's a problem because they were not allowed to execute people on their own. The Jewish people were under Roman rule, and only Rome was allowed to execute people. And so Jesus is saying something that's going to put him on the wrong side of the Roman authorities. If he says, no, you should not execute this woman, well, now he's soft on sin. Now he's denying God's word. Now he's not living out the scripture, and they can turn the crowds against him. So I'm sure they have plotted this all out. I'm sure they are very excited. We've got him in a black and white crystal clear. He's going to have to come down on one side or the other. Whichever side he comes down, we've got him one way or the other. We've got him trapped. We've got it all figured out. And then Jesus is going to act in a way, of course, that undoes all of that. Moving on to verse 6 through 8. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He doesn't even answer their question. I love it. You know you don't have to answer when people ask you something. If someone's trying to frame something in a certain way, you don't have to engage. And so Jesus does something completely different. He bends down and starts to write on the ground. He's writing in the dirt with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he's silent this whole time, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So again, this is maybe the most well-known part of the story. Let anyone without sin cast the first stone. That's just a well-known phrase, right? A well-known phrase to say, hey, are you sinless? If you're not, then just simmer down. Just calm down with your your self-righteousness and your anger. Sin is sin, and we call sin, sin. But just calm down. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So what did Jesus write on the ground? We have absolutely no idea. And isn't that one of those things you just want to know more than anything? What did he do? Did he draw a picture? Did he write out something? Was there a sentence there? Like was there was he writing out scripture as some people have suggested? Was he writing out sins that people in the crowd had committed as some others have suggested? We don't have any idea other than whatever he is writing is obviously connected to this idea, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That it's it's connected to that somehow. So it is pure speculation. I just kind of like the idea that Jesus starts writing down sins that he knows are being committed by others in the crowd. I just I like that picture. I think that's a faithful picture of who Jesus is. So if he's writing down your sin, the thing you're struggling with right now, and he writes it down and then says, all right, anyone who's not doing any of these things, throw a stone, and everyone goes, oh, that's me down there. Ha. Huh. There's no place for me to be self-righteous here. There's no place for me to elevate myself above this woman here. Uh, It's obviously connected. So whatever he is writing, and again, that's that's pure speculation, whatever he is writing, it has an impact. And so we see elsewhere throughout the Gospels where Jesus does this sort of thing, where he kind of turns things around uh, and makes us look at ourselves first. Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so Jesus, he's not speaking literally. Jesus had a habit of using uh, grand hyperbole to make his point. So he's not literally encouraging self-mutilation. He's saying if there's anything in your life that's causing you to sin, get rid of it. And in this passage about lust, I mean, obviously, to literally commit adultery is a worse sin than having a thought, right? Just objectively, it is a worse sin. But in terms of uh, our self-righteousness, our willingness to look down on others, our willingness to say, I'm up here and you're down here, in these verses, Jesus, in that sense, just levels the playing field of sexual sin. He just levels it. Because lots of us have not committed adultery, but I don't know if there's anyone on earth who's never lusted, who's never had a thought or a fantasy. And so Jesus is saying, don't get on your high horse. Everybody take your own sins seriously. Adultery happens, it starts with lust, right? It starts with a thought. It starts with a fantasy. As Jesus does regularly throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he says, start dealing with the heart first. Deal with it when it's just a thought, and it'll never escalate to something that is more than that. And it's a a radical commitment to whatever in your life is causing you to sin in any area, get rid of it. And so I know people today, even in this day and age, who say, I cannot have a phone and I cannot have internet in my house, because the temptation to look at things that I shouldn't look at is just too strong. And so they're trying to put this into practice and say, like, you know what? It's really inconvenient in this day and age to not have internet available to you all the time, but I want to be faithful, and I, I'm feeling the temptation, so I'm just going to get rid of it. I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to throw it away, because I want to walk in the purity that Jesus calls me to. And so we have a tendency, all of us, to, to elevate other people's sin as worse than ours. We have a tendency to say, hey, We're we're up here and you're down here. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that with his teaching. Uh, He told us, we've come back to this one a few times as well, a little later in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so, again, like, don't look down on your brother because he's got something going on. Like, you worry about you first and foremost. And as you are worried about you and dealing with your own stuff, then you're actually helpful to your brother. Uh, when he's going through his stuff. You can actually be an assistance to him as we're trying to all get cleansed. We're all trying to get cleaned up. The idea is that we all get the junk out of our eyes. We're all choosing purity. We're all choosing holiness. So when it says don't judge, it doesn't literally mean uh, don't judge right from wrong or don't call sin, sin, because Jesus does those things. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus would say, if your brother sins against you, go and talk to him about it. And so it's not saying literally you can't say there's sin in somebody else and, and vice versa, but it's about, again, attitude. It's about the heart. It's about how How are you doing it right with the measure you judge the way in which you judge that person that's going to come back on you right the so if we're going to get self-righteous and angry and, and lose our mercy and lose our grace and just we're up here and you're down here that's how you're going to be judged when you need to be corrected. And so if we are wanting God to deal with us with grace and mercy and compassion, then we also should be walking in grace and mercy and compassion. Not softening our view on sin, but on how we are dealing with the sin. We're going to act the way we would want to be treated in accordance with the golden rule. Paul says this in Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So again, no room for we're up here and your sins down here is worse, right? I am holy and you're not, or I have my own sin, but it's not compared to your sin, and we're going to focus on how bad yours is and ignore. It's like, no, if you see sin in someone else, you say, that's a fellow struggler who is caught up in something, and it might not be the same thing I'm caught up in, but they are going through something, just like I'm going through different things. My job is to walk with you gently through that so that hopefully both of us are getting out of our sin, and then just the warning, you might fall into the same stuff, So no room, again, for self-righteousness when we see sin in other people. There's no room for that at all. We're warned to be careful. You might also follow into that same thing. So as Jesus writes on the ground, let the one without sin throw the first stone. He keeps writing on the ground, uh, moving into verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I like the detail of the older ones walking away first. Just wisdom and experience goes, oh, kind of before everybody else. Ah, okay. So the older ones begin to disperse. Then eventually everybody goes Um, and just how Jesus has managed to completely disarm the angry mob. He's just disarmed them. And when we talk about being peacemakers, that Jesus has called us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers don't ignore conflict. They just want to find different ways to engage with it. And Jesus would have been fully justified in this moment to say, hey, who do you think you are? Get away from her and cause a fuss. He would have been perfectly justified to to throw stones at them because they're also caught in sin. He would have been perfectly justified to throw stones at the woman because he's the only one without sin who would have the right to step in. In that moment, he would have been Pers- perfectly justified to just run away and, and, and just you know, save himself. He's got a cross to get to down the road. He's got to be protected. Like all of those things might have been reasonable. Jesus doesn't do any of them. He finds a completely different way to totally disarm the situation. A completely different way. And it all started with them saying, hey, you have to answer our question. Are you here or are you here? Right? Take a position, take a stand. And Jesus says, no, thank you. You don't have to. You don't have to do it the way the other person is framing the argument. You just don't have to do that. When I was in school, you debate a lot. And, uh, and they teach you how to debate, and they teach you how to um, you know, craft an argument, and this is what I believe, and this is how I'm going to present it, and then someone will push back, and then you wrestle through it, and it's all part of learning and growing. But one of the things they teach you early is that when someone asks you a tough question, you don't have to answer it on their terms. And it's perfectly acceptable to say, I don't agree with your premise of how you're framing this. I just don't agree with it. Here's how I would frame it, I'm going to answer it the way I want to answer it, and not the way you're trying to force me to answer it. And so Jesus does this brilliantly in this story. He won't play their games. He won't get caught up in their politics. He won't uh, do anything along those lines. And he disarms them entirely by going in a completely different direction. And what has he done here in these moments? Because we, we don't get this upset about adultery in this day and age. Certainly as a church, we're not stoning people or anything like that. But to be in the context of that time, to put this into that uh, frame of mind, to put ourselves into that story, this is a woman who has legitimately sinned, like there's no question. And again, there should be a man there, and I don't know what the deal is there, but there is legitimate sin that has gone on. The Bible is very clear about that sin. That's all there, and it's crystal clear, and there's no questioning that part of it. And there is an angry mob, and they are there potentially to kill her in the moment. We're not sure. At the very least, they're out to get her, and they're using her in order to try and trap Jesus. And so she's in danger in this moment, and she is ashamed in this moment, and she is alone in this moment, and she is on display in this moment. And what does Jesus do catching her in her sin, as this group has, her legitimate sin? Jesus protects her first. He protects her first. He protects her. He won't let the mob do what it's trying to do. He protects her. He does that first. What else does he do? He puts his name, his reputation on the line, right? He is now publicly defending a sinner. They've already not liked it when he's done that in the past. He puts his name and his reputation on the line for her, I will protect this one. I'm not going to let you do it. Well, what if they think you're soft on sin? Yeah, they probably will. They said that lots. He is putting himself back in that place again in order to love her, in order to protect her. He is potentially, we don't know for sure what's happening in the story, potentially putting his own life on the line. If they really are there with rocks, ready to go, if the bloodlust is up and they're ready to execute somebody, he's putting his own body in between her and the angry mob. So he's protecting her, he's putting his reputation on the line, he's associating with her, defending her, potentially putting his own life and health on the line. In order to keep her safe, he's doing all of those things. And that's just a very, very Jesus-y thing to do. Because Jesus says, even in your sin, I will go to the cross for you. Even though you have done wrong, even though you have crossed those lines, nonetheless, Scripture says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. That he died for us out of that love. He died for us in order to protect us. He associated his reputation with us as well. He he gets down in the dirt with this lady who is cut off and cast out by everybody. And he, he associates himself with her. He's done that for every single one of us. And as he goes to the cross for us, he pays that price for our sins. He does that out of his love and devotion for us. So Jesus straightens up, verse 10. He's been down in the dirt, literally. He straightens up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. And so, again, Jesus, of all people, has the right to condemn her, right? He is the one without sin who could throw the first stone. Uh, He is the righteous judge. He is the only pure and holy one who is completely without sin. So Jesus does have the right to condemn in that moment. He does have the right to execute judgment, and he doesn't in this moment. To condemn someone is to pass judgment and to execute the judgment. To condemn someone is to say, you are wrong, and here's the punishment, and I'm going to punish you for it. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that here in this moment. That's consistent with what Jesus has said elsewhere. We all love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I also like John 3.17, a verse later, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So Jesus, when he walked the earth the first time, didn't come in condemnation. He didn't come to pass the judgment. He didn't come to execute the punishment. Now, to be clear, when he comes the second time, He's coming as the judge so that is coming the second time he's coming as the judge but the first time he came and at that example that we are to follow as he lived out his life here on earth and we're told if we're going to be followers of Jesus we got to follow Jesus he didn't come in that condemnation he came to introduce people to himself He came to bring people back to the Father. He came to show a revelation of the Father. He came to speak the truth and call people to follow it. He didn't come to condemn. And if Jesus, when he walked the earth, says, well, I'm not going to execute judgment and punishment on you, why do so many Christians tell other people they're going to burn in hell? It, It shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be happening. And I told you a story last week of, of having to start a Twitter account for an article that I write and just finding that Twitter is the worst place on earth. It's just the, the most awful place. And it's honestly, a large portion of it is just Christians telling other Christians, other Christians, that they're going to burn in hell because we don't agree on this disputable matter. And, and it's just full of that. And it's so vicious and toxic. And, and as that is sort of unfolding and as I'm watching that unfold, I'm just going like... If you're telling someone else they're going to go to hell, you have kicked Jesus out of the judgment seat and said, I think I know best, thank you. I think I know who's going where. And you don't. You're an unqualified judge. There's only one judge who decides who goes where. And so the Bible talks about hell, and we should. We should talk about what the Bible says about hell. It is not our place to decide who's going and who's not. One of the things that seems very clear to me in the Gospels is that on Judgment Day, there's going to be some surprises. Some of the people who think they are getting in are not getting in, and some of the people you wouldn't think are getting in are going to be first in line. So God, help us if we are getting self-righteous in this way. God, help us if we think we have the right to make a decision like that. You're not qualified to decide someone's eternity. Our job is to tell people about eternity, to tell people about Jesus, to invite them to know him. That's our job. God will decide the rest. God will figure it all out. We just don't know enough to, to sit in that seat. That's not our job. As Jesus wraps up the story, go now and leave your life of sin. So again, here's truth, right? She's in sin, undeniably. And he's not willing to let her stay in that sin. He wants her to repent. He wants her to turn away. He wants her to choose a different direction. And so there is truth there. In accordance with God's word, she has crossed the boundary lines. And so Jesus says, okay, so now that I have protected you, now that I have saved your life, now that I have associated myself with you and put my reputation on the line and put my body on the line, now that I've done all of those things, you need to make some changes in your life. You need to repent. You need to turn away. You need to go in a different direction. Go now and leave your life of sin. That is part of our job as well as followers of Jesus. Part of our job is to say, here's what the Bible says sin is. And part of our job is to say, all right, so let us find God's way now. God's way is a better way. And it doesn't need to be, hey, I'm coming down on you with self-righteousness and judgment because I don't think we're called to do that. But just God's way is a better way. It's a better way for a reason. So let's find the way of life. Let's find life as we follow after Jesus. So Jesus, go and leave your life of sin. So he's not soft on sin. He's not compromising God's word. He is not doing any of that. I also find it interesting. He doesn't say this part until that angry mob is all gone. And it probably would have helped his reputation a lot if he'd said that while they were there, right? Like they're they're all probably going away saying, we just saw Jesus defend an adulteress and then he just said, well, we're not allowed to do anything and he didn't have anything to say about the law of Moses or anything. Jesus waits till they're all gone and then says just one-on-one, go and leave your life of sin. I don't know what that means. It just struck me as interesting this week that it, it probably would have helped out his public reputation if he'd said that earlier in the story and then they would have gone like, oh, okay. Well, at least he's holding to the law, and okay, good. And and he didn't do that for whatever reason. But he says to her, you need to change now. And so you need to to turn this around. Now, I think where we struggle as Christians is that we're really, really good at this part. We can be really, really good at, at yelling about sin. We can be really, really good at being very loud and very vocal about what's sin, Uh, If someone isn't a part of the church and, and isn't following Jesus, they probably know our position on certain sins, right? We can be very, very good and very, very vocal on that part of it. But as we do that part of it, we're ignoring the other parts of it where Jesus also defends this woman and protects this woman and puts himself on the line and puts his reputation on the line and sacrifices of himself in order to keep her safe. We skip over that part. And get straight to the, hey, you're a sinner. And so the Bible does say drunkenness is a sin. It does say that. And when Christians were battling against alcoholism in the 1910s and the 1920s, it was all just about these alcoholics are ruining society and they need to leave their sin. And it turns out when you just do that part of it, nothing really changes. And yet over time, as we understood, you know what, alcoholism is a struggle, and there's a genetic side of it for some people, and there's a disease part of this thing, and a lot of it happens because we're we're really battered and wounded by life, and we're trying to numb that pain. And as Christians began to go like, you know what, there's a way we can come alongside these people gently, like Galatians tells us to. There's a way that we can support, and, and we're not softening our view on sin, but we're actually loving the person. We're actually treating the person with dignity and respect, even as we call them to a different path, as we call them to a different way. All of a sudden, alcoholism drops and starts dropping. Right? The Christian solution was, let's, alcohol, let's outlaw alcohol. That'll solve the problem. And all prohibition did was create a nation of lawbreakers because everyone just kept drinking anyway. And it was the rise of the great criminal gangs who could now make a fortune off of alcohol that they were transporting illegally and all that stuff. So we can't just say, hey, you're a sinner, stop sinning. We can't just do that. And if that's all we're doing, we're not actually being Christ-like in this story. Because before Jesus got to that point, he showed a tremendous amount of love and protection and care and concern for the person who was in the sin. He did that first. And then as he does that for her from there, uh, he says, all right, now you need to leave your sin. That needs to change. You need to find a better way. Before he speaks that truth, he shows the grace. The grace came first in this story. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He showed her grace first. Then he speaks the truth. Both are necessary. We can't just do the first part either where we just love people and that's it. Because we're called to love and protect and, and do all of that. And we're also called to share the truth gently and lovingly. All these different groups that Christians have been mad at over the years. In the 70s and 80s, it was divorce and remarriage. That was our big cultural battle that was going on. We did a tremendous amount of damage to divorced people. Who, by the way, were already pretty beat up because of what they'd been through in their life. And the concern was, well, if you don't come down hard on divorce, then we're going to look soft on marriage, and we got to be very pro-marriage. And there was a way to do that and be very pro-marriage while still loving the hurting people who'd been through an awful lot. There was a way to support them without endorsing it, without saying, hey, everybody should get divorced. There was a way to love and support them through it while still standing strong for marriage. And maybe it's a little bit harder, but sometimes the way of Jesus is a little bit harder. Sometimes it's harder to hold these things in tension together. And so we don't get to just speak truth without doing the the first part, the loving, gracious, honoring the person, protecting the person. We have to do that as well if we're going to follow after Jesus. And we don't get to just do the loving part without ever talking about truth. We have to do that part as well. There's a couple of verses, again, that we hold in tension. In John 7, 7, Jesus says, The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And he would also say, and if you're going to follow after me, that's going to be part of what happens for you. That if you're going to call sin, sin, it's going to make you unpopular sometimes. So Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. He also said in John 13, 35, by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I just think the way the world, the people who don't know Jesus yet, the way they should look at the church when it comes to sin is we should be kind of baffling to them. I think we should actually be a little confusing because on the one hand, we're saying sin is sin and God's way is better and we should find God's way. But that needs to be wrapped up in the most loving, gracious, protective, compassionate, merciful people they've ever met. And that's bound to be a little confusing. And I think that's exactly what the, the mob is confused in this story. What is he doing? He's not doing what we would expect a religious person to do. I think when we the world looks at us as we engage with sinners, it should be confusing. Because we're saying, hey, sin is sin. We're taking God's word seriously. But we're also going to be the most loving and gracious people you have ever met in your life where we're willing to die for you. And I would say, speaking very, very broadly, that we've done the truth part pretty well and we have not done the love part nearly as well I think these different groups that we have been you know fighting the culture wars over for the last couple of hundred years I think they know very very well what our biblical positions are and they have not seen us laying down our lives for them they, they haven't seen that part and if they haven't seen that part then, then how do they know that we love them and you say like well you love them by speaking the truth come on up worship team we love them by speaking the truth and I go yeah Yeah, I've noticed it's the jerks in my life who talk that way, like the blunt people who who are very, uh, like the ones who don't think they need to to love, like just you speak the truth and that's what love is. I go, yeah, and love corrects sometimes for sure and love rebukes sometimes for, for sure. There's no mother ever who's anticipating the baby to come who's going, I can't wait to just correct you that's going to be the best part of my love for you. There's no parent holding that newborn baby that says, you know, I love you so much, and I'm just going to tell you what you're doing wrong all the time because that's the fullness of what love is. There is no one looking into their future spouse's eyes on their wedding day as they get ready to make that vow and saying, I just can't wait to fight with you and tell you everything you do wrong every single day. Because love speaks the truth, and love corrects and love rebukes. It's like, of course it does. That is not the fullness of what love is. If that's the fullness of what your love is, I, my heart aches for you. There's so much more to love than just that. Jesus would say uh, through his word that love is to lay down your life for somebody else. Jesus demonstrates love by laying down his life and calling us to lay down our life. Jesus goes to lay down his life, not literally, but he lays himself down for this woman. He lays his reputation down. He lays his health and safety down. He he sacrifices for her. He shows love to her in a very obvious way. If we're just yelling about what truth is or yelling about what sin is and not doing the love part, we're not following in the way of Jesus to its fullness. We're taking the one part and we're not doing the rest. And so we have to be cognizant of both. We have to be both committed to truth and not compromising the truth, while also being wrapped up in the most loving, generous, sacrificial people that the world has ever seen. And if that's confusing to them, so be it. I think Jesus was pretty confusing to the people when he walked around. I think they weren't really always sure what to do with him, and that is okay because our job is to not compromise the truth and to love people in a radical, self-sacrificing way. And so as we get ready to wrap up here, we're wanting to help people take their next steps with Jesus upwardly in our relationship with him, inwardly as he does his work in us, outwardly as we live this out towards other people. So I don't like to tell you exactly what to do with this I would like you to take this away and take some time to pray about it talk about it Lord what's my next step maybe there's a step in each area maybe there's one area he wants you to pay attention to but you can wrestle through this with the Lord in the week to come but in terms of just some things to think about upwardly possible upward next steps is that and your relationship with him just where is your sin at Right? Where are things that you are struggling with? Where are things that you are stumbling with? Where are things where maybe you are focusing on this sin from these people over here or that sin from those people over there instead of actually worrying about what's in your own eye? And, and where do you need to acknowledge that to him? Uh, where do you need to, to bring that to him? And that ties into the inward piece that if Jesus were to stand before you right now and protect you in your sin and, and surround you with that love and protection in that moment... But if Jesus were to look you in the eye and say, go now and leave your life of sin, what would he be talking about? And I'm guessing, you know, probably pretty quick. So what would he be talking about? And so then, okay, what's next then? Is it I need to find someone to confess that to and and walk with me gently as we seek to get out of it? Is there a behavior that needs to shift right away? Is there uh, help I need to get? Do I need to even just come up for prayer today? Like, what's the next step from there? But if Jesus were to say to you, go now and leave your sin, what would he be talking about? And then what's the next step to start to follow after him in that way? And as we look outwardly then, Wherever we've looked down, maybe, on on certain sins or, or certain sinners, wherever we've looked down on certain situations, have you loved that person the way Jesus loves her in this story? Have you done that for that person? And if not, how can you? What's a step that you can take in order to show that love and protection? You're not agreeing with their actions. You're showing the love and devotion because that's what Jesus did. You're protecting them because that's what Jesus did. Scripture says love does no harm. And so you don't want anyone to come to harm. So what are you doing to demonstrate God's love, to demonstrate your love for the person? Uh, What steps can be taken in that direction, either for a literal person in your life or or maybe just a shift in attitude towards a group in your life? Again, you can pray through this stuff. But I'm going to ask you to stand with with me, please, as we get ready to wrap up this morning and to take some time just to fix our eyes on Jesus as we get ready to close. And then we'll pray together.